I'm going to ship some things around here, brother. You know, this morning, we're going to be taking a look at interaction, but I'm kind of, let me, let me rephrase that by saying this. Recently, in my own spiritual life, I've kind of been looking at interactions that Jesus has with people. So part of what you've been seeing over the past few weeks, or over the, really since kind of the end of June, is, is my kind of exploring Jesus encountering people and, and what those encounters look like and, and how he spoke into and touched and, and empowered people's lives, how he kind of called them out in the middle of their struggle, in the middle of whatever their issues were, how he touched them, how they touched him, and just those sort of remarkable interactions that Jesus has with people. Because there's a part of our lives, I think, that gets wrapped up in church's activity. Church as something that we do, and church is in habit. And we forget that the reason we even gather is because God invites us to have this incredible interaction with Jesus. That everything that we do as a church is really wrapped up in the fact that God wants to know our hearts, and that God wants us to know Him, and that we are called to have these interactions with Jesus. And so I've been kind of exploring those on my own, and part of what we're looking at over the past few weeks and is really these encounters that Jesus is having with people. And last week we looked about, G- about the encounter that Jesus had with the woman. Remember the prostitute that came in, and, and she fell to his feet, and she weeped, and she dried his feet with her, her hair. And you remember that whole encounter? We really unpacked that and looked at how, really how Jesus just sort of spoke into this woman's life, and we talked about our own sin, our own struggle. Well, There's a little bit of an interaction that's got some similarities to it that I want to explore today, but really has connotations both for us as individuals and for us as a church. And it comes out of the book of John chapter 5. So if you've got your your Bible, I want you to, uh, to go ahead and turn. We're going to be in the first... 15 verses as we kind of explore this interaction, both from a, a personal standpoint, God, what are you saying to me? What is my own, my own hang-ups and my own struggles and my own issues? And then, God, what are you telling us as a church? How do we begin to live these truths out or really kind of where we're going as we look at this kind of somewhat famous encounter about how Jesus heals a man um, who has been basically disabled for 38 years? And so let's take a look at that in John chapter 5. Before we get there, let's take a moment and just pray together. Lord, we do thank you for these moments to gather right here in this place, to be able to worship and sing and gather together. God, we thank you for the moments to open your word. We know that your word is your, your truth, and we know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. God, this, this scripture is not a collection of stories, but God, instead, it's how you speak into our life. It's your love letter for our lives. It's your calling. God, you speak to us through your truth. So take a moment this morning in our hearts, God, and let us encounter you through your word that you might prepare us to meet with you. Take just a moment this morning, right here in the stillness of this place, as we kind of settle into an opportunity to really explore God's word together, and just ask God to teach you this morning. Just say, God, teach me something. Take a moment and just pray for someone around you, in front of you or behind you, doesn't really matter. Just pray for them. Be in the habit of praying for people around you. Just pray that God might move in them this morning. God, we do thank you just for these moments. We pray that you would open our heart to your truth, that you would reveal it to us. 
God, we don't invite you in this place. We know you're already here. We just turn our hearts and our lives over to you uh, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, a lot of, some people say, some people have asked me recently, you know, hey, Trip, how do you, how do you decide what it is that you're going to, to preach on? I mean, you know, sometimes we're doing this, sometimes we're doing that, sometimes we do these long series, and, and really the short answer is, is that most of what you get here on Sunday morning is what God is doing in me, okay? So it's, it's not like I'm some kind of super scholar slash theologian that's going to wait to enlighten everybody. It's just God moving in my life. God teaching me, God opening my heart, and me dealing with my own sinfulness, my own struggle, my own learning, and then just coming here and basically teaching it all to you. So we do this together. So it's not some kind of grand scheme of, it's really just what God is doing. Now sometimes we plan things out and, and we'll really kind of do some intentional stuff, but, but that still is God teaching me and instructing me and me coming out here and just saying, man, this is what we're doing. So, you know, people are always kind of shocked. They're like, you mean it's not some kind of, you know, I'm like, no, it really is just what God is doing, and so here it is, and so we don't get a whole lot deeper than that, so a lot of what you're seeing is what God is doing in me, and what I believe he's calling us to be and do as a church, so part of what we do here is we grow together, we learn together, we, we air our own grievances, and our own struggles, and our own hurts, and our own joys together as we open God's word, and we say, wow, this is not Treb telling me how I should live, this is not Treb telling me to get my life correct, get rid of my sin, get, it is Treb saying, man, Together, we need Jesus, and this is what Jesus is doing in me, and this is what I believe he wants to do in you and who he wants us to be as a church. That's about as complicated as it gets, and really this morning is a real picture of that because what God was revealing to me and opening to my heart as I began to look at these interactions over the course of the summer was how desperate and deep my own need is for Jesus. I mean, at the end of the day, I am in desperate need of Christ. I cannot live my life on my own. I am a colossal disaster. Most of us are, and we need Jesus. And what we're seeing in Scripture is when people encounter Jesus, they come face to face with really who they are in light of all that God is and all of his magnificent glory, and there is a ridiculous contrast. And usually they walk away totally changed. Well, we're going to see that interaction this morning in John chapter 5, a man that has an encounter with Jesus. He really doesn't even know it initially, yet he has his life radically and totally changed. And I believe there's a lot in here for you and I. So let's take a look at this for you and me. That's bad grammar. Uh, John chapter 5, all right? Someone will tell me later, so I might as well just mention it now. John chapter 5, starting in verse 1, right? Okay. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem Uh, For a feast of the Jews. Now there in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate was a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind and the lame and the paralyzed. One who was there had been an an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and he learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes in ahead of me. And then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat, and he walked. The day in which this took place was a Sabbath. And the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well told me to pick up my mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow that told you to pick up your mat and walk? And the man who was healed had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. 
Now, the reason this story is really kind of somewhat famous is because it's really built around a legend, all right? So Jerusalem had several gates. I mean, it was a walled city, a fortified city. Most of the cities in the area were. They were up on mountaintops or on hills, and they were fortified with walls so that when people came to attack the city, they couldn't get in, right? And in the city, they had naturally had four or five entry points or gates. And this one gate in particular had a pool by it. And most of the time, those pools were really just watering holes for animals. Because as people would come up from, you know, the valley below, and they'd bring their animals, they'd stop at the gate, and they'd let their animals water while they went into the city to do business or whatever. Well, at this one gate, the sheep gate, most likely called the sheep gate, because that's the gate where people took their sheep in and out to the pasture, there was a, a pool there that was called several things, but one of the things that we see here is it's called Bethesda, and it had these kind of covered colonnades. And, and it, we learned in our story that it was a place that a lot of disabled people used to gather. They would basically lie there, and it was really built around a legend. And the legend was this. There was a legend that said that every once in a while, in a periodic time, an angel would come down, and that angel would stir the waters of this pool. And if you went down and you put your feet or your body or your hand or whatever in the pool and you were the first one to do it, you would be instantly healed. Now, we don't know if there's any truth to any of that, but it was a legend. And so you can see why this might be a gathering place for people that had ailments or disabilities or, or things that they needed to be cured of. And everybody kind of knew this is where these people went to go and gather, hoping that this legend might be true. So here we have this, this pool where animals used to drink water that were kind of surrounded by people that are laying there hoping day in and day out that, that somehow these waters would get moved and that they might get down there first and become healed. That was the hope, right? Kind of like winning the lottery. If I could just get down there, all these troubles of mine will disappear. And that's exactly what they would do. Most of these folks couldn't walk on their own. We even learned about this man who had been this way for 38 years. You rely on your friends to bring you there and then lay you there for the day, hoping that if the water stir on that day, you might be able to get down there and be healed. That was the legend. Well, Jesus and his disciples come into Jerusalem to take part in the feast. And they're coming in through or approaching this gate, and Jesus sees and knows about all these disabled people that are lying around this pool. And he learns about this one guy who had been disabled for 38 years. The Bible calls him an invalid, meaning simply that he could not walk or move on his own. We don't know much else about his condition. We just know that he has no ability to walk on his own, which means he relies on friends to take him on a mat, which we see happen in Scripture actually often. People, taking, uh, people that can't walk, laying them on a mat, so they're not just laying there in the dirt, and leaving them there for the day. And then this friends would come back at the end of the day and take this guy back to wherever he was, was staying. But that was this man's life. And Jesus learns about this guy and how he'd been this way for 38 years and that most likely day in and day out he would make his way down to this pool and he would lay there hoping that this legend were true. And it says that Jesus approached this pool and he finds this man. He goes straight up to this guy who had been this way for 38 years, which most of his life, if not all of his life, this is all that he's known. And Jesus looks at him, and, and in what seemingly at first seems like a really ridiculous question, he asks him, he says, do you want to be healed? Do you want to get well, is actually what Jesus says. Which, at first glance, seems like a ridiculous question. I mean, who wouldn't want to get well, right? But, but if you really think about it, the question's actually really important. 
Because on the surface, if you were handicapped or if you were an invalid or if you were disabled, you were allowed to, by religious law, to beg for money. So you had the ability to sit outside the temple gate or around one of these other gates and beg for money and you would get income coming in. So on the surface, you could see, well, maybe, you know, he doesn't want to get well because maybe there's an easy kind of element of income or maybe he's, you know, got that kind of going for him or whatever. But, but Jesus really never, ever really deals with the surface. He always deals with something deeper inside of people's hearts. So what I really think what Jesus is getting at is he's getting at a deeper probing question to this guy. He's basically saying, do you want to be well? Now, it's not that crazy of a question because think about it. This man had been this way for 30 eight years for 38 years all he's known is this life every day someone comes and picks him up takes him to the pool and every day he waits and he waits and he waits and he waits you know the truth is is that even in the most uncomfortable of circumstances sometimes we find a lot of comfort even when we have things going on in our life that we know are destructive that we know are harmful we find a certain amount of safety in that area and so asking this man if he really wants to get well is actually an important question because it's a question about his heart. Because this man had never walked. He'd never known another life. Maybe, just maybe, he's, he could be fearful about what life would look like if this weren't his life. You know, I really started thinking about this because if we're really truthful, I mean, this is where a lot of us live. Now, not on the outside, I mean, you know, we, we don't necessarily are, are living with a disability, per se. But all of us have something in our lives. Struggle, sin, hurt, behavior, you know, action, relationship, whatever it is. We've all got one. And even though that we know that that thought pattern, that behavior, that thing, that person is destructive to us, we cling to it. Because we're somewhat scared or petrified or afraid of what happens with our life without it. Because we've known it for so long. It's just sort of a, a made up of who we are. And usually we can kind of control it. But we really know that that thing is killing us. It's eating us alive. Yet we're really afraid of what it means to get well. It's not necessarily something that just happens on the outside. That we see this in people's lives. Some of our chronically homeless friends that we do ministry with in the park every week. We see this sort of pattern. Two decades of homelessness. Do you want to get off the streets? Yes. But I don't know that I can, because I don't know that I can deal with what, what that means for me. And I started thinking, you know, I said, even though I may not be physically disabled in this category, I may not be homeless in this category, I've got some things in my life that I will not let go of. Sometimes they're just things that I think. Sometimes they're emotional, but sometimes they're just behaviors that really, the question is, am I really willing to turn loose of that? That fear. Because as long as I have that fear, that thing, that thought pattern, that behavior, then I have something to blame my issues on. But if I'm really cured, removed, or, or, or kind of redeemed of that thing, I don't know that I know what to do with my own life. Now, I know that sounds somewhat crazy, but if you're really honest and you think about it, we've all lived in this category on some level. So when Jesus asks this man, do you want to get well, he's really getting to a core issue at his heart. And so we see the man kind of, kind of go back at Jesus and he says this, he says, Sir, I don't think you understand. When the waters get stirred, I have no one to help me down there. And so somebody else beats me to it. 
So here's Jesus asking him this, this sort of question designed at his heart. And here's the man responding with the reality. Which is basically saying, why do you ask if I want to get well? Because there's no hope for me. Don't you get it? I cannot walk. I cannot move on my own. If that water gets stirred, according to the legend, no one will move me down there. So I'm laying here and someone yells, the waters are moving and I can't get myself to that pool and somebody else always does. In other words, he's basically saying, look, it's hopeless. What does it matter if I want to get well? You know, we've lived in these categories. I mean, what does it really matter if I want to get rid of this thing, this behavior, this issue? Because the truth is, is that it's maybe just not for me. I mean, maybe I'm just destined to deal with this thing forever. But you know, there's something really amazing about this interaction that takes place. Because this guy has no idea who he's talking to. We know that because he tells the Pharisees later on, he goes, who healed you? He's like, I don't know. Which is remarkable because most everybody knows who Jesus is. They know all about him. They've heard the stories. They know the rumors at least. Yet this man doesn't have any idea who he's talking to. The man who's asking him if he wants to get well is the man that made the trees and the stars that breathe life into his very lungs. The redeemer, the healer, the answer, and the hope. And he's still talking about the water. Now it's hard to blame him because he doesn't actually have any idea really who he's speaking to. But it's a remarkable interaction nonetheless. Because if you think about it, he's standing so close to the only answer to his life. The actual reality of who could heal him. Not some legend of the water. Yet he doesn't even see it. He doesn't even know it. And he's still wrapped up in I can just get myself down there. That would be the answer. And I was really struck as I was thinking about this because, I mean, this is really who I am wrapped up in a nutshell. Standing face to face with the God of the universe, the God that wants to redeem me and heal me and free me. The answer, the hope, the God, the giver of life. And yet all I can think about is if I could just get to the water, if I could just pay that bill, If I could just get this one thing behind us, this one thought, this one behavior, this one thing, and then I'll get, then this, then things will get moving. But the very giver of life is standing in my presence, and I'm looking for the water. I mean, we all live here, don't we? On some level, and even if we don't want to really get honest about it, we really do. We're standing face to face with a God that wants to redeem us, change our hearts, and give us life that can cure us and heal us and move in us. And yet we're still thinking about, man, maybe those waters will stir. We're talking about two totally different things. We're talking about a God that wants to heal our heart and people that want to have their surface adjusted. Because most of us really don't want to have a heart healed. We just want to have the things around our life fixed so that we feel better about what's going on, so that we can manage a little better. But the truth is, We're standing in the presence of the healer, of the redeemer, and of the life giver. Much like this guy. So here he is standing in Jesus' presence, and he's going, look, I can't get down to the water. And then Jesus, right, looks at him and says this. He speaks right to him, and he says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And and once the man was cured, he picked up his mat, and he walked. Now this is amazing. 
Because most of the time in Scripture what we see is people having some kind of faith that, that kind of moves their healing. So even, even last week when we look at the woman who fell at Jesus' feet and put perfume on his feet and cried on his feet and dried his feet with her tears. Jesus looked at this woman and he says, woman, your faith has set you free. You are forgiven because of your faith. We don't see any inclination that this man had any idea who Jesus was or any kind of superhuman mega faith that was like, yes, I believe you're who you say you are and all these things. He doesn't even know who he's talking to, yet Jesus takes this initiative and heals him. God just moves. God just moves. He doesn't wait on this guy to finally figure it out and then come begging for some kind of super healing. He just basically says, walk. It says at once the man was cured and he picked up his mat and he began to walk. That very kind of thing where he spent 38 of his years of his life lying on. It's the thing that defined him because these mats, they were really only designated for crippled people. Normal people didn't carry them around or, you know, people that weren't um, disabled didn't carry around a mat. Yet he picks up his mat just as Jesus said and he begins to walk. And then our story turns a little bit. It takes a different kind of function. The interaction swifts, shifts from Jesus, to, of this, Jesus and this disabled man to this disabled man and the Jewish leaders. So the guy does exactly what Jesus says. Jesus says, pick up your mat and walk. He's now instantly cured in front of all of these people. And he starts to walk. And he runs into these Jewish leaders. He says he bumps into the Jews, meaning the Pharisees. And they stop him and they say, hey, don't you know that today is the Sabbath? The law forbids you to carry your mat. Now, the Pharisees were actually the keepers of the law. They knew the law backwards and forwards. In fact, they had kind of created part of the law themselves. They had made a life out of explaining and defying and, and defining the Mosaic law. So what they would do is they would take the law that was given to Moses and they would tell you basically how you were to live it. They had created a whole life around this. It's called the oral tradition. And they would basically parse out the law to figure out what it really meant and what it didn't. So technically the law said, you know, don't work on the Sabbath, honor God and rest, right? That's kind of what the Sabbath was. Well, then the conversation began to happen. Well, what really does work mean, right? What is work really? And they had created a whole system for defining things like work. They had created a law, an oral law for what you could actually do. What knots you could tie, what knots you couldn't tie. How many steps you could take, how many steps you couldn't take, right? What you could carry, what you couldn't carry. And somewhere along the way, in all their brilliance, they'd come up with the idea that carrying a mat was work. Now, this is not just about the Sabbath. The, the Pharisees had done this with the entirety of the law. And they held that their interpretation or their oral tradition of the law was on the same avenue or the same strength as Scripture. And that's where Jesus and the Pharisees always had their encounters, was over these you say laws. You say that it's unlawful to do this. But God says this. Well, here's this man, recently cured, recently healed. I mean, can you imagine just the, the things that are going through this guy's life, his heart, his mind? He encounters these religious leaders, and they stop him. And they say, you're breaking the law because you're carrying your mat. And the funny thing about this is, it's not like these Pharisees didn't know this guy. It's not a huge community. He's been that way for 38 years. They've probably walked by him 5,000 times. They knew that he was crippled, yet here they see him walk. Yet what are they wrapped up in? They're wrapped up in the fact that they say he's breaking the rules. Breaking the rules. Now, 
I find this amazing because I think it's a real, it's a real picture of who we've become as a church. Not necessarily we as in we, but we as in collective we as a church. Because we get so hung up on our man-made rules and our man-made tradition that we forget to see the lie that's standing before us. So the Pharisees wrapped up in the fact that this man is carrying his mat and not that he had just been cured, healed, redeemed. We see this happen all the time. Several years ago, years ago, when I was working in, in a church in Austin, I had a kid whose parents were both alcoholics, severe alcoholics, going through an awful divorce. And this kid, he was a mess. He was a mess. Wasn't a churchgoer at all. Obviously, his parents never really took him there. Met him at this kind of function we were doing, encouraged him just to come to church, and he said, you know what, I can't. There's just no way. One day this kid musters up enough courage to go to church, drives himself there, never been to church in his life, comes to our church, comes in the back door and sits in the very back row, back pew of this church. Never been to church, never had this kind of experience, going through all kinds of crazy personal trauma, struggle, hurt, and heartache. Sits in the back of this church. Doesn't look like he's at where he belongs at all. Has this kind of experience. Wasn't such a bad deal. Maybe I'll think about coming back. Towards the end of the service, right when everything's over, this really well-intentioned man who I know very, very well, he loves the Lord, goes up to this kid as service was over. He's walking out of the door, and he looks at him. He says, listen, I just want you to know that if you're going to keep coming to this church, you need to take your hat off in this sanctuary. It's about respect. And the kid, of course, was, I'm sorry, sir, you know, he takes his hat off and all this stuff. Petrified. Never came back. I couldn't talk that kid into coming back to church. Ever. The man, he had great intentions, which is, look, this is a place where we worship the Lord. Yet we were so hung up in our rules about worship and about what you can wear and not wear that I missed the fact that this kid was standing before me risking for Jesus. Right? Not too long ago, even in this place, we had someone come in that, that's never been back, and she was, seemed to be a wonderful woman, but she stopped me after service and she said this. She said, I can't ever go to a church that uses a bar on the weekend. And I said, I tried to explain to her, you know, that, well, we don't operate it, you know. <laughs> I mean, maybe we could, but I said, we don't. And, uh, and I tried to explain it to her, but she just wouldn't have it. She was like, the fact that you're even in a place where people gather on the weekend and they do things that I think the Bible says we shouldn't do. I can't even be here. So we talked about it and she left and never saw her again. Next week I had a kid come in who stopped me and said, hey, I just want you to know, I'm 28, I haven't been to church in five years. It's actually been longer than that, probably closer to eight years. He said, my life is a mess. The last time I was in this place was... Six years ago, five years ago, and it was at a fraternity party, and it was a disaster. Um, we had a fraternity party here, and the whole, my whole night was a mess. I mean, not just from what I did, but things that happened. It was, it was a wreck. And I drove by day after day, or Sunday after Sunday, and I see your signs up on the street. And I finally just decided that if, if God was going to put a church in the place where I remember the wor- one of the worst nights of my entire life happening, and that had to be an entry point for me. And so the, the kid comes in, he sits down, and he has this incredible kind of moment with the Lord. Him and I still have a great relationship. But I started thinking, sometimes we get wrapped up in the rules more than we do about the lie. 
Not too long ago, as you know, we have these little kids that kind of run around everywhere. We, we don't have a whole lot of space to do great stuff. So we do hallways and whatnot, but we want our families to worship together. And sometimes that means that our kids dance and they run. And we were doing communion not too long ago, and, and we had all of our kids come down for that last song. And we'd finished communion on bread where all that stuff was still out here. We're singing, and, and we're singing, and we're dancing. And all the kids are kind of running around, and I'm sitting over here, and I look over, and one of these little girls, sweet little girl, walks up there, and she just reaches up and takes a piece of that bread and just starts eating it, right? And I kind of thought it was funny because I was like, she's hungry, there's bread, we're all kind of moving around. I have a snack and then keep dancing. I mean, that's kind of what's probably going through her sweet little head. But I thought somewhere in the world, someone is rolling over on the fact that, that some kid just reached up and took the communion bread and ate it right there in the middle of worship. I mean, tragedy. And I thought to myself, I, I just, I want to live in a place that says, God, we're so more concerned with the hearts and the lives of people than we are with our man-made rules. Now, rules are important. Don't get me wrong. It's not like they don't exist for reasons. And there's a lot of them in Scripture that we're called to live and adhere to. But when we get caught up in our man-made expressions of those rules, we forget to see the guy standing in front of us holding a mat. I believe we've blown it as the church. So they say... You know, you can't carry your mat. And this guy says, well, uh, I'm going to tell you this. The guy that healed me told me I could. And they said, well, who healed you? And he's like, actually, I don't really know. Because Jesus had already slipped into the crowd. And so this guy goes about his business and he goes back to the temple and it says that Jesus finds him at the temple courts. And he looks at him and he says, look, you're, you're well. And he said, now quit sinning or something worse may happen. Basically implying that sin and death is way worse than being crippled or handicapped for 38 years. He's going, there's something spiritual at play. Stop living a life of sin. So the man goes back to the Jews and he goes, oh yeah, I knew who did it, it was Jesus. He healed me. You know, as I think about this interaction from my own life, there are, are, are a couple of questions that really jump out to me that I just want to brush on real quick. The first one is, is really that first question that Jesus asked, which is, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be well? Now, most of us don't want to deal with this question because we don't want to have to admit that there's really something that we need to be healed of. Because when we think of the word healing in church settings, we think about physical healing alone. But the reality is, is that most of us don't have a physical ailment that we feel like we need to be delivered from. Most of us are kind of dealing with emotional or spiritual struggles inside of our hearts, sin and issues and things. But most of us don't want to admit that we need healing from those things. That I can just deal with them on my own or one day those waters will stir and it will all work out. I'll get a little bit more money, we'll get a little bit better relationship, my husband will finally come around. Whatever it is, those waters will stir and life will work out. But the reality is that we've got to deal with this truth. Every single one of us has sin and struggle. We've got pain and we have disability and we are in desperate need of Jesus. And when we come face to face with that reality, then we can really deal with the heart question is, do we want to get well? Or are we content with hanging on to that fear, that bondage, that struggle, whatever that thing is, with dear life because it's all that we know? What if we risked and were willing to allow the God of the universe to step in and cure, heal, redeem, be the answer, the hope for our life? Instead of trying to look past him to see how we can get down and solve this thing ourselves. Do you really want to be healed? Do you really want the God of the universe to mess up your life? Because we've created church lives that we're really content with. I really like my system. 
I like the fact that church fits in these compartments for me, and I can go there, and I can leave there, and I can sit here, and I can get that, and it fits within my comfortable structure. But when I begin to let Jesus into my life, he messes everything up. And I don't know that I want that. I mean, really want that. We've got to deal with that question. And only you can deal with it. The second thing that really jumps out to me is, is do, do you really believe that Jesus can heal you? Now, the perfect Christian answer, of course, is yes, absolutely, I believe that Jesus can heal me. But our lives don't really match that phrase very often. Most of us say it with our lips, but our lives, we don't, we don't live lives that truly believe that Jesus can still move, can still heal, can still cure, can still redeem, can still free us. So we're constantly trying to figure out how to get out of the water, just in case this Jesus thing doesn't work out. We're constantly thinking of ways to fix and solve our own problems, our own struggles, our own issues. And we're always thinking, if I can just pay that bill, just fix that thing, just, if he'll just start coming, if, if, whatever, fill in your own blank, then, then it will work out. The reality is that I believe that Jesus still heals. I believe he still cures. I believe he still redeems. I believe that he's standing right in front of us saying, do you want to get well? The question is, do you believe it? I mean, for you, not for somebody else. Oftentimes we believe that Jesus can do a lot of things for other people. He just doesn't want to ever seem to do it for me. Do you really believe that Jesus can and will heal you? And then finally, that last interaction is really as a church or as church goers. Are we concerned and wrapped up with our man-made traditions and rules? So concerned with those that we forget to see the lives standing in front of us. The truth of this place is that we're not perfect. Right? Sometimes the music's too loud, sometimes the words don't match, sometimes I have holes in my jeans, sometimes we have a homeless guy sleeping on the stairs, right? sometimes our kids are running around, sometimes our trailer gets stolen. I mean, this place is a bit of a mess. But the reality is, is that what we want to be about is seeing people walk in these doors with their mask. We want to be about going into the world and seeing people for who they are, to take them and love them into relationship with Christ. We wouldn't be so concerned over who sat in my table seat and the fact that we just may have run out of donuts and instead be wrapped up in the fact that man, there are people here that are in desperate need of Jesus and I am one of them. We want to be a people-driven community that want to love people into relationship with Christ, that understand that Scripture has created boundaries and that our role is not to add our man-made rules to that structure and traditions so that we can block people's encounters with Christ. But instead say, you know what, there may be a reason that guy talks the way he talks, says the things that he says. There may be a reason that he smells like he hasn't had a bath in weeks. There may be a reason why that guy keeps coming with his daughter and we never see a mom. There may be reasons behind all these things. So instead of being annoyed with that kid that runs up and down the aisle, we look past those things and we say, man, maybe, just maybe, God is doing something. And I want to be a part of that. September the 6th, we're going to walk outside these doors after church and we're going to invite the world to be a part of what we're doing. I mean, we can't just put up billboards once a week and hope people show up. Eventually, we just got to go out into the world and say, we believe this Jesus thing is so real, we want you to come be a part of it. We want you to do that with us. And our prayer and our hope is that someone might walk in these doors carrying their mask. And maybe that someone is you. We walk in and we say, Jesus, 
I need you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these moments to gather in this place. We thank you for what you're doing in our presence.